Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the Gray Zone. It's me, Max Blumenthal, here with American journalist Wyatt Reed. American journalist on a list of many lists of traders, Wyatt Reed. How's it going, Wyatt? Good. I'm 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 thinking of starting a list of my lists just so I don't forget all the lists that I've been listed on. Well, we'll talk about your, your uh, list. We'll get uh, into that. Yeah. Congratulations. Uh, thanks to everyone. You're our managing editor for, uh, the next two years at least. So, uh, congratulations on that. And, uh, I hope you're managing. We just like made up some kind managing of like title for you. <laughs> it works, I think. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's all like, what am I? Am I like editor emeritus now? Like, editor in chief. But basically, you know, I haven't had a day-to-day -day editor to work with before, and it's increasing our productivity. Um, there are there are very few people out there who actually can write consecutive words in English that make sense, who also understand the subject matter on a granular level that we're working with. So I went deep into the. Appalachian backwoods. It was kind of like journalistic version of deliverance and why it was there. You were out there looking for papas and ginseng and you found me instead. <laughs> no, I met, I met you through a more interesting saga. We'll, we'll tell another time. Um, Shana Tova to everyone who's observing to all the uh, tribe out there. Why are you, are you, am I, do I remember right that you're part Jewish? I'm Jewish enough. Let's leave it at that. You're, you're Jewish. Well, I mean, it, your, your Jewishness went up. Jewish enough to work at the gray zone. <laughs> you're in the media, so that works. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, no, we're, uh, you have no we've money. actually expanded. Right. Yes. Yeah, uh, Jewish. So, um, yeah, it's the Jewish New Year. Um, we're all going to be inscribed in the Book of Life, or uh, and uh, it will be determined whether we'll die horrific deaths in the next few days or whether we'll get to live. Anyway, now that we have all that out of the way, we'll get into and welcome everybody, especially from. Uh, from out of the US. We have such a wide, widespread global audience. We hope to visit you all and do gray zone shows across the world. Um, but hopefully, I think, you know, in this next year or so, I want to start doing some actual live shows in the US. So we'll see if that's possible. Um, anyway, right now here in Washington, there is a coordinated freak out targeting one of the wealthiest men in the world, not because he is hoarding wealth or because of inequality because or because, um, I don't know, he's seeking to control private data of millions and millions of people, but because he's insufficiently warlike. We're talking about Elon Musk, obviously. Elon Musk, who is in charge of the former Twitter, social media platform now known as X and also 
the X empire, the Tesla empire, um, major government contractor, someone who previously got good press and was this is the subject of a biography by Walter Isaacson, who's one of the most famous mainstream biographers in the US. He is a liberal, you know, associated with the Democratic Party. Um, but Musk gave him some access. Because why wouldn't you? I mean, the book is going to be in the front of every airport bookstore about yourself. Um, he, I mean, Walter Isaacson is really like the mainstream biographer right now. He's sort of like Robert Caro, but maybe a lot less interesting. Anyway, so Walter Isaacson published a piece in the Washington Post last weekend about how Elon Musk had supposedly thwarted, I don't know if that was the language he used, thwarted, thwarted a Ukrainian attack on the Russian Navy, naval fleet at Sevastopol, which is one of the key frontline Russian naval bases. Um, it's what it's, it's one, a big it's, part of the it, reason that this war even happened in the first fought, place, yeah. right? Yeah, so it was going to be a Pearl Harbor style attack um, by un, unmanned aerial vehicles, unmanned, basically submarine drones, and they needed Elon Musk's Starlink communication system to participate. And so the way Isaacson framed it initially was that Musk actually turned it off to avoid uh, being a part of this and then said, I, I, I didn't sign up to be part of uh, some war coalition. I'm just a private US citizen. And I thought I was bringing peace and helping people in Ukraine by giving them Starlink, which is true. I mean, in, in a way it's true. He was providing them with a free charity service when Russia had taken out their satellite system early on during the Russian military operation that began in February, 2022. So Musk stepped in out of the, you know, after being asked to and gave them what they needed. Um, and it's triggered a freak out. And, and, and the freak out is very specific to the Democratic Party. Democratic Party talking points are being distributed to attack Elon Musk over this. We'll get into that. I think it, the initial salvo was launched by Jake Tapper, who is sort of like the leading neocon personality at CNN. Someone who, and he had an interview with Tony Blinken last weekend and just went off on him. You know, he, and he, this is the thing, Jake Tapper and the rest of the corporate media neocons, they will never challenge a billionaire or a Western official unless they are insufficiently militaristic. Otherwise it was just a softball interview, but then this part unfolded. Uh, has recently confirmed a report that's in Walter Isaacson's new biography of Musk that last year Musk blocked access to his Starlink satellite network in Crimea in order to disrupt a major Ukrainian attack on the Russian Navy there. In other words, Musk effectively sabotaged uh, a military operation by Ukraine, a U.S. ally, against Russia, an aggressor country that invaded a U.S. ally. Should there be repercussions for that? Jake, I can't speak to a specific episode. Here's what I can tell you. I mean, and it's, anyway, so Blinken just deflects because what is the Secretary of State going to do to Elon Musk? Like what repercussions are they calling for? Is he going to announce the nationalization of X? Anyway, that and that's what this is all about is like narrative control.
the Democrats feel like they've lost the narrative on the most important social media platform for political public figures, whether they're journalists or politicians. And, and what Jake Tapper was doing, Wyatt, was lying. He was lying through his teeth. That is not what Elon Musk actually did. And Walter Isaacson, following that Jake Tapper interview, had to issue a correction. Uh, here's Walter Isaacson's right. correction. To clarify on the Starlink issue, the Ukrainians thought coverage was enabled all the way to Crimea, but it was not. They asked Musk to enable it for their drone sub-attack on the Russian fleet. Musk did not enable it because he thought, probably correctly, that would cause a major war. Whoops. So anyway, this just kind of undercuts the whole narrative of Tapper and the pro-war Democrats, right. but they're still rolling with it. I like how that's a clarification too. It's it's yeah, not you're a, totally walking back the original claim. You know, that's that should be a retraction, right? You you said a lie and now you're conceding that it was a lie, but you're pretending that you were just misunderstood or something. Also, just to point out, the United States and the Ukraine are not military allies. They're not a member of NATO. Yeah. Uh, they are labeled, I believe, a strategic partner under under certain um, uh, a certain sense, but they're, they're, they are not an ally in any formal sense, uh, but this is a claim that gets repeated over and over again. This is part of what's being used uh, to justify the demonization of Elon Musk's. Uh, well, let's we'll get into it here in a second, because he, he Musk has actually come out and clarified uh, the position, exactly what, what happened after following this massive freak out, um, as you noted, the only time they're ever going to come out of after a billionaire like this is for some perceived transgression against the military industrial complex. Um, but uh, it seems to be the case that Musk himself was not authorized to turn on Starlink in the first place. Not that he, you know, the, so the story has evolved so dramatically over the, over the course of a couple of days. First, it was that he specifically shut off Starlink coverage. And now, now we know that he, that coverage was never enabled in the first place. And the reason why is because to do so would to, would be to violate U.S. sanctions against Russia. So, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, I, I, so we'll, we'll get into that here. Um, it might be worth uh, putting and up. Here's Elon Musk's here own explanation. Where... Yeah. So, I mean, the, again, it's just undercuts the narrative that the Democrats, the corp like CNN, MSNBC are pushing right now. When you consider that U.S. citizens are not allowed to operate in Crimea because it's sanctioned. Here's Elon Musk uh, without the volume on, and now here's him with the volume on. Yeah, Pedro, at, the, at the time this happened, the uh, region around uh, Crimea um, was actually turned off. Now, he in, he's in some vast hall or something, so the sound is terrible. He, he, he's on a plane using Starlink ah, and, and, okay. and, and zooming into this uh, summit in Los Angeles. All right. Well, the reason it was turned off was actually originally was because the United States has sanctions against Russia, um, and we are not allowed to actually, and that includes Crimea in the sanctions, <laughs> and we're not allowed to actually turn on uh, connectivity to a sanctioned country without explicit government approval, um, which we did not have from the U.S. government. So, um, so, so basically the. Uh, uh, you know, Ukraine didn't, they didn't give us any, any advance warning or heads up or anything. 
um, where we just got the, the sort of uh, urgent calls from the Ukrainian government saying that we needed to turn on Crimea. It's like in the middle of the night, basically. <laughs> and we're like, what are you talking about? You know, are you lost? <laughs> What's it for? <laughs> I mean, they're kind of laughing at the, it, 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 it looks, it look, it sounds silly. Like, oh, we're doing a military operation. Right. Let's call some billionaire in the middle of the night. Uh, maybe it'll work and we'll destroy Russia's Navy. Like, is that the level that the Ukrainians are operating at? I mean, and it's is, absurd. This is, it is absurd. So, I mean, yes, there was the chance as even Walter Isaacson acknowledged that this could have caused world war three could would have caused a major military escalation. But to me, it seems like it would have been just crossing another red line while initiating another bungled attack, like the U Ukrainian special forces landing in Crimea, which ended in disaster for them as they fail dramatically in the counteroffensive. They're mounting all these terror attacks on Crimea and across the Russian Federation that don't do any structural damage and usually aren't even successful from a tactical point of view. Um, right. You know, and that, yeah. You know, we, we basically um, figured out that this was kind of a, like a Pearl Harbor type attack on um, Sebastopol, on the Russian fleet in Sebastopol. So they're really asking us for to, to really proactively take part in a major act of war. Um, and, um, you know, while we have, so, so certainly have huge support for the Ukrainian government, um, the Ukrainian government is not in charge of US uh, people or companies. Uh, that's not how it works. Do you hear that applause? So you're making people an excellent point. Companies. Right. Yeah. One of the most popular. And and Elon. But 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 I should say that you know although I'm not uh, President Biden's biggest fan, if if I had received a presidential directive to turn it on, I would have done so because I do regard the president as the chief executive officer of the country. Whether I want that person to be the, 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 the president or not, I still respect the office, and so if, if you know. If, if, if we gotten if I gotten a request from the president type of thing from the American president, to be clear, or from the CIA director, um, <laughs> then, then I, I would have the real on, president, you know. So, but no such request came through. Well, that's I mean, yeah, there there are a lot you can say there. I mean, one kind of secondary point I would make is that. Is is that the the Biden administration is? It's unclear if the Biden administration actually wanted such an attack to take place or succeed. Uh, especially at that point, they weren't yet ready to attack Crimea. But I mean, what what else does that say about you know the relationship between Musk and the government, Wyatt? Well, he's trying to preserve that relationship. He doesn't want to kill the golden goose. This is what's made his massive fortune possible in the first place. So all these government contracts, these government subsidies for all of his companies, whether that be SpaceX or Tesla, uh, he's right. trying to play nice. He's trying to play both sides, basically, right? You know, talking about how absurd and ridiculous this request was. But if it had come from our pretend president who can barely string two sentences together, then, of course, you would have honored it because, you know, he respects the office or whatever. Um, yeah. So it's so it's it's really so, mouthed. Um, 
but you know, at this point, even a, a mealy mouth two faced billionaire is is better than than you know the the Blinken administration. Let's call it that because I don't know who is actually really calling the shots uh, at this point. Certainly not Biden himself. Yeah, I mean it's the Blinken Newland. It's it's Biden's kitchen cabinet, and the, then the, you have the Pentagon, and uh, Wyatt. I mean, I, I actually don't have it in front of me, but you know, on this point, because what part of the the Democrats' criticism, which is sort of valid, but it's warped, of Elon Musk in this situation, is that the U.S. government shouldn't be relying on billionaires. Uh, to wage a war effort, for example. Uh, there's a new Senate Democrat letter where they're demanding the Pentagon investigate Elon Musk's contract. It, it's it's wild, the wording. You know, they're, here it is. Senate Democrats are demanding that the Pentagon turn over information about Musk's Starlink contracts with the U.S. military to investigate whether there are safeguards in them to prevent another version of the recent fiasco. The fiasco in which he didn't, <laughs> Let the it wasn't even Zelensky who was demanding he turn on Starlink. It was Mikhailo Fedorov who is the minister of digital transformation. So it was some low-level deputy prime minister telling him to do it. So failing to listen to a foreign deputy prime minister has prompted the Democrats to demand the Pentagon investigate all of an American billionaire's contracts. And they um they are aggressively probing the Musk Ukraine fiasco from every angle, and uh, they accuse him of meddling. And in the, and in, you know, I mean, if you read, they're they're accusing him of defend effectively defending Russian interests. Um, so this is sort of a version of Trump Russia, where they're targeting, they're basically transplanting the Trump Russia um, narrative onto Elon Musk, and we'll talk about what this is about in a second. But why aren't they asking for a probe of other billionaires and companies that the US and Ukraine are relying on entirely for this war effort? For example, Palantir, which actually Peter Thiel founded, but it's run by a guy named Alex Karp now, who's uh, much more of a bipartisan player. He was at the last two Bilderberg conferences in Washington and Lisbon, Portugal, with all the NATO chief and all the Five Eyes intelligence heads. And Palantir is responsible for all the targeting and maps that the US, US CENTCOM, the Pentagon, is supplying to the Ukrainian military. Palantir is using AI to develop maps and targeting systems. And it's not uh, as though the US government is supplying this. It's a private corporation that's a private spying corporation that's involved in so many surveillance scandals, hoovering up Americans' data without their permission. And uh, it was actually featured in that 60 Minutes segment, Wyatt, that you tweeted, where the 60 Minutes correspondent goes to meet with Mark Milley and uh, you know send it to me in the private chat or something, and I'll, th I'll throw it up on screen. But basically, Millie says we have an open, we have open pipes, open intelligence pipes to the Ukrainians, and it basically shows how the U.S. is running Ukrainian operations from the operations room, and all those maps on screen are from Palantir. But nobody cares about that in Washington because Palantir is doing what NATO wants. It's doing what Ukraine wants. It's doing what the Pentagon wants. Elon Musk just 
steps back for a second, behaves like a private citizen, and then all of a sudden, the hell and you know, fire and fury rains down on his head from the Democrats because this is Biden's war coming up on re-election, and Elon Musk they they're they're blaming him basically for screwing up Biden's re-election by by failing to mount this Pearl Harbor style attack. And what do they care if we go to the brink of nuclear war? Well, and and for following the U.S. law, right? For following the sanctions which demand that he receive express permission from the U.S. government to be able to allow Starlink to be activated over Crimea in the first place, right? Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I, I have sent this uh, this link to you. It's, it, this, is, this, is worth, uh, this video is worth watching too, this CBS story that came out recently because it really just shows you how far down up the escalation ladder we've gotten. Uh, you know, months ago it was, it was totally forbidden to acknowledge that this is a proxy war. Now CBS is openly acknowledging it's a proxy war. Um, and I'm not seeing the, the link, chairman Wyatt. of the Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, sent it to you on Twitter and in WhatsApp. Uh, okay. But uh, <laughs> well, there's a private chat to the right <laughs> on StreamYard if you want to do that. Oh, oh, uh, okay. I'm uh, okay. using my phone, so I can't do that. But oh, it's I'll, all good. Um, I got, I, all right, I got it. Uh, and so, yeah, so what's going on here, Wyatt? Well, this is basically an admission, the first kind of admission I've seen from the mainstream media that we are indeed engaged in a proxy war, They're, to use their words, a new forever war uh, against Russia using Ukraine as an intermediary, something that you and I have been pointing out uh, since the beginning of this war for a year and a half now we have been uh, explaining that this is what's going on and uh, we've been ridiculed and attacked for it uh, the consensus among the mainstream media has been that actually we are simply helping the plucky ukrainians stand up for themselves against the evil russian empire against evil authoritarian vladimir putin who wants to uh, restore the soviet empire and who sees himself as a new Tsar. Uh, but now we are finally kind of getting a, a little bit of the truth um, and we're getting an inside look at the command post at which uh, the U.S. is waging its proxy war against Russia, selecting targets for the Ukrainians. And uh, as Milley says, uh, he, uh, quote, our intelligence pipes to Ukraine are quite open. These are unclassified because we're here. Track the painful progress of the offensive. It looks like the Ukrainians, the yellow, have cut a pretty good wedge out of the uh, the Russian lines. That's true, yeah. What physically is that that they've had to get through? Well, it's minefields. Boom. It's trenches, it's ditches, it's small, I mean, 10, 12 men. Just oh. right there, they're showing Ukrainians just getting wasted Awful. in the counteroffensive. That was a horrible shot. That, that video, you know, that was a compressed Man, version of one of the most horrifying videos I've ever seen. Uh, that video, if you watch it in its entirety, shows an entire armored carrier full of Ukrainians get dropped off directly into a minefield. And one by one, they blow themselves up. More of them come out to rescue the other Ukrainians who've, who've lost legs and limbs. And then they get blown up, too. Uh, it's, it's horrifying what they're basically subjecting these people to. They're kidnapping these Ukrainian men off the streets. Uh, most of them are trying to go into hiding. The ones that get us that get caught trying to escape or going to work, uh, they get thrown in the paddy wagon and they get deposited at some 
un, you know, undisclosed location, perhaps in Poland. Uh, and then they get three weeks of basic training, shoot a rifle a handful of times, and then they get thrown onto that. Um, and that's, you know, by Millie. This is what now we're by Millie, right? Not by, not by the Ukrainian, you know, whatever is left of the Ukrainian regime, which is just, just a, a, a puppet of, of the people like Mark Millie. Yeah. He's armed with anti-tank munitions. What other defenses are they going to encounter if they make it through those? Those orange lines you see there are Russian trench lines. And in between those orange lines, which you don't... But those orange lines, all that, that's Palantir AI maps. I don't see our minefields and tank ditches and what's called dragon's teeth, barbed wire, that sort of thing. This is a multi-layered Russian defense in depth. The U.S. advertises the $44 billion in military equipment it has committed to Ukraine, but says very little about the equally valuable intelligence. Do you share what you know about Russian troop movements with Ukraine? Our intelligence pipes to Ukraine are, are quite open, uh, for sure. And, and of course, the CIA and interagency, NSA, all those guys. So, uh, But there's pretty open pipes uh, on intel to Ukraine. So are you helping Ukraine select targets target selection and authority to strike is with ukraine what we do is provide them situational awareness but you tell them there's a command post over there there's an ammunition dump over there we'll give them the situational awareness uh as best we can tell so this really is a uh, a proxy war you don't have boots on the ground you're not making decisions but you're helping ukraine kill russians we're helping ukraine defend themselves is what we're doing Ukrainian goal is to reach. He doesn't say that it's not a proxy war. He's basically like, yeah, pretty much. Right. So he says uh, he, he says what people like you know uh, Mitt Romney. I, I, there's uh, Lindsey Graham have have all been saying, which is you know this is actually a wonderful situation for us. This is kind of what he's getting at. Oh, we we get to degrade Russia's military capabilities, quote unquote, without actually having to expend any american blood just hundreds of billions of dollars of taxpayer money so to your point about uh you know the ukrainian government having been basically turned into a shell that's controlled by whether it's the u.s military private corporations like palantir depending on elon musk or the you know u.s and eu feasting off it uh like vultures on behalf of corp corporations in wall street here's a perfect example of that here's tony blinken appointing penny pritzker as the u.s special representative for ukraine's economic recovery she will work with ukraine's government international partners and the private sector to accelerate ukraine's economic transformation i can't think of anyone who better exemplifies the exploitative predatory nature of the economic relationship between the US and Ukraine than Penny Pritzker, who's got this phony position now to basically bring US corporations in to strip what's left of Ukrainian public assets off under the cover of war. Penny Pritzker is from the notorious Pritzker clan of Chicago, which founded the Hyatt Corporation with money from organized crime and stashed that money in an offshore bank that had been set up by the OSS, the forerunner to the CIA, and was also being used to wash Meyer Lansky's money uh, while he was operating 
in Cuba when that story was exposed in the Kansas City Star in, I think, 1982. Penny Pritzker's father attempted to purchase the newspaper in order to disappear that story from existence. Penny Pritzker herself, as I pointed out here, was placed on the board of her family's superior bank, which they bought with government money, our taxpayer money, $625 billion of it, and then ran the bank into the ground through a subprime mortgage scheme, which left over 1,400 uninsured depositors penniless. They lost all their savings and there was nothing they could do while the Pritzker family uh, got wealthier and wealthier. Penny Pritzker was basically given over $50 million from her family trust to just spend as she wished. In 2008, when she came up for uh, as a no nominee for uh, then Commerce Secretary under Obama, she had to withdraw her nomination because she couldn't handle questions about this. But he eventually got her in there because you know she's basically at the top of the Democratic Party Chicago machine. Her brother, I think it's her brother, JB, is the governor of Illinois. He's a fairly progressive governor. Um, you know, there's there's a lot to say about the Pritzker family, but it's very, very revealing that this special position has been created by the State Department for Penny Pritzker to preside over what's left of Ukraine's economy. As I say, Slava Wall Street. So, yeah, well, she, I mean, what is that position going to be? Basically, just kind of an auctioneer for BlackRock. Just exactly. Kind of snatching up little bits of industries, uh, desirable territories, and then selling them off, uh, not even to the highest bidder, because, you know, I, I don't even get the sense that there's really a, a real competition going on. It's just a handful of companies that are all owned by the same company, uh, you know, snatching up whatever they can for as cheap as possible. Yeah. Um, it's very similar to the, the relationship between the U.S. and Ukraine in, in many ways is similar to the U.S. relationship with another country that's been destroyed by war, but it was destroyed by a direct U.S. intervention. And that was done under the watch of Barack Obama. And that's Libya. Yeah. So here, here's Barack Obama commenting on the natural disaster, which is actually a man-made disaster in Libya, where in the city of Derna, dams burst, causing floods, which killed 5,000 people. And it is a unbelievable disaster upon many disasters, which Libya has experienced. Um, I was actually listening to an interview with the former information minister under the deposed and destroyed government of former Libyan president, murdered Libyan president Muammar Gaddafi uh, on RT. Um, the information minister said that those dams in Derna were up for inspection in 2012, but the country was split in half thanks to NATO's intervention in 2011, so they never got inspected. So here's Barack Obama Here's his one tweet on Libya. If you're looking to help people impacted by the floods in Libya, check out these organizations providing relief. And then it goes to the Obama Foundation, which is 
recommending that people donate to the Red Cross and Oxfam and, um, you know, a bunch of basically the development industry that's cashing, going to cash in on Libya's disaster. And much of the money, probably most of the money with the Red Cross will go to administrative costs. And in, in other words, paying paper pushing staff. So this is disgusting. Barack Obama comes in, destroys a country. And then he just says, check out these organizations that are helping. And I'm going to go ha have dinner with Steven Spielberg and Bruce Springsteen after uh, the boss's concert. Michelle's going to play tambourine. Let me be clear. I enjoy cooking in Martha's Vineyard. My chef had uh, very good swimming lessons. He's a good swimmer. And uh, check out I these myself. Check out these organizations. But this is the this is the response from mainstream media and all of the major officials who participated intimately in the destruction of Libya, which led you could which you, where you can draw a straight line between this disaster and the intervention. Uh, Samantha Power was one of the key figures who convinced Obama. Actually, Obama knows that it was a disaster. He was upset about it. And he actually was in many ways blaming Samantha Power in the media afterwards for what he called the biggest mistake of his administration. Here's Samantha Power. The because the flooding has killed a lot of people. So USAID, she's this, you know, director general of USAID now. Uh just de deployed a disaster assistance response team. Oh, it's giving them one million dollars. One million dollars. Thanks a lot. Thanks for nothing. Like a million bucks. How much did it cost to destroy Libya? Probably a lot more. And how much damage did it cause to Libya? Hundreds of billions of dollars. And so as well, I point, and, and I, you, yeah, go ahead. Well, do well you I remember, just quoted Samantha, Samantha, Samantha Power Powers. afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, her exactly. quote after Never the mind. war when exactly. she was challenged about it was yeah. we could hardly expect to have a crystal ball when it came to accurately predicting outcomes in places where the culture was not our own. I mean, what better right. distillation of the colonial mindset of USAID, the responsibility to protect liberal interventionists who destroyed Libya and the whole development industry, the aid industry that's now coming to Libya. Could there be than that? We didn't know when we wanted to destroy the government of this country, what was going to happen because it was a different culture, but we did it anyway. And Hey, some people, we, we tortured some, it's like Obama saying we tortured some folks. Well, and that's, that quote came from her new book or well, a book yeah. three, four years ago. And I actually had the chance to challenge her on this. I went to her book signing and I made the fatal error of not purchasing a book. And, you yeah. know, then I would have had a chance to uh, talk to her a little bit longer. But I got up in her, in her face and I recorded it and I said, well, uh, you know, you, I, I, I noticed that in your book, you said you, we could hardly expect to have a crystal ball when it came to accurately predicting outcomes. Uh, did you have a crystal ball for Syria? Right. Did you learn your lesson after Libya? Did you get, acquire this new magical crystal ball? And, you know, did you decide to apply that those lessons to Syria? Uh, of course, she didn't refuse to answer my questions. She called security. Uh, security tried to chase me out of the building. Uh, they missed me on the elevator and I saw them running their way up the stairs uh, as I was walking <laughs> out. Uh, but, uh, yeah, probably faster than any of those security guards had ever run in their lives. Um, you know, 
Heaven, heaven uh, forbid uh, a politician in D.C. face one single moment of, uh, you know, skeptical questioning. Um, and that was that was right before COVID happened. You know, that was one of the last chances that I got to actually kind of uh, stick it to any of these people and, and just ask them the questions that the mainstream media, the legacy media would ask them if they were made up of anything more than corporate stenographers. Uh, but then, of course, COVID happened. All of these things became remote. Uh, and ever since, it's been basically impossible to talk to any of these people and to kind of get them on the record, ask them these uncomfortable questions. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I, I kind of wish it, it, it was still possible. I, I certainly would have much more of a desire to live in Washington, D.C. If, if it was. Well, it is increasingly possible but there were years when it it wasn't uh and that was pretty frustrating for me but sometimes you just got to bum rush the show like i did when rachel maddow was speaking because uh, they don't want to take questions anyway even if they're in person and we saw samantha power at this big rollout for the state in a smartphone dia app she wasn't going to take any questions here's the bbc on <laughs> libya's disaster completely context-free tweet i guess there aren't any community notes on it. Libya was once one of Africa's most no. prosperous countries, but years of lawlessness have left it in a fragile, divided state, ill-prepared to cope with the forces unleashed by a natural disaster. I wonder what could have contributed to the forces of lawlessness. I wonder what that could have been. Well, the, the problem is there, there was, I believe, a community note uh, on this, on this, uh, on this tweet uh, explaining just that. Uh, I'm trying to pull it up, I, I, I'm not seeing it anywhere. I believe it was the second time that uh, this, uh, you know, some kind of anti-NATO critical uh, uh, note was uh, posted and then very quickly uh, unposted. Uh, the same thing happened last month when uh, NATO made a post describing uh, their supposed defensive orientation. Uh, last month, uh, they, uh, and we've got this here in the document, uh, they made this extremely bizarre post saying, quote, let's get our facts straight. NATO is a defensive alliance aiming to safeguard its member nations. And I totally destroyed them. They got ratioed to hell. Uh, I posted some photos hey, here's of the that devastation right in, yeah, in, uh, in former Yugoslavia. I this said, is what Belgrade looked what, like after Bel NATO defensively bombed it for 78 days, killing over 2,000 civilians. And uh, here, there's prompted, a community. Well, this originally prompted a, a community note, which explained that uh, <laughs> NATO is not a defensive alliance. It said that... NATO, uh, quote, NATO assured Soviet leaders not to expand eastward one inch. It's well documented. They cited uh, NSA archive documents, which prove exactly that. And then the same note, community note said that NATO also conducted several wars and operations as, aggr as aggressor, like in Yugoslavia and Libya. Um, but within hours, this community note was deleted, I'm sure after some frantic incredulous calls between some NATO 
uh, operative and the community notes uh, staff, someone at Twitter, someone at Big Tech, um, and that note was removed. And then shortly thereafter, it was replaced with another one that said, quote, whilst the number of the uh, whilst the number of civilian death toll is concerning. You like that construction? Like <laughs> clearly some idiot pretending to be smart misspelled death toll and they threw in whilst, you know, a sure sign of somebody trying to sound smarter than they are. Uh, whilst the number of civilian death toll is concerning, a realistic assessment would place the number at around 488 to 527, according to Human Rights Watch. The 2000 death toll figure comes from the Yugoslav government, a number which hasn't been verified. Um, yeah, so it's like, need... uh, it's, it's you know, NATO, and it's, I don't know if it's bot army or whatever, impressed upon X the need to decontextualize your tweet and whitewash their reputation that they're putting forward as a defensive alliance against, obviously against the wishes of the consensus, which it was responsible for the original community note. And this happened, this is increasingly happening as uh, we see the attempts to bring Elon Musk to heel. So it's depressing, but back to, back to Libya, I mean, there's an obvious effort right now to whitewash a deliberate effort to whitewash the context out of the discussion for one of the worst natural disasters this year across the globe because it wasn't a natural disaster it was an unnatural disaster and people like samantha power should be held accountable for it people like barack obama should be held accountable for it and they're still holding government positions uh it's remarkable what we're seeing from, I mean, even the Washington Post, well, here's, here's the BBC's security correspondent. He's a complete stenographer for the British national security state, Frank Gardner. He wrote uh, that the crisis has been compounded by Libya's dysfunctional politics and the country lacking the security and stability that its people crave. No mention of 2011. Then, then the chief middle east correspondent just, for BBC. that you know how those people are yeah they just crave security but they're, people they're just are. wild they, savages they, they get it they together it wasn't they like they were together, the most you know yeah. exactly it's just a dysfunctional bunch of brown people they just it's not as though they had the most prosperous stable country and a completely stable country on the african continent prior to 2011. Uh, and then Quentin Somerville, the Middle East correspondent for BBC, comes in. This is a radio report, so um, I'm just reading it. There are many countries that could have handled flooding on this scale. I wonder why. But not one as troubled as Libya. It has had a long and painful decade. Civil wars, local conflicts, and Derna itself was taken over by ISIS. The city was bombed to remove them from there. So civil wars and local conflicts, it doesn't mention regime change wars or that the British state actually armed one group after spawning a civil war, the Libyan Islamic fighting group who trained Salman Abedi, who then went into Syria to fight with ISIS and that the Royal Navy then gave Salman Abedi and his father who fought with the Libyan Islamic fighting group, a, a literal, a ride from Libya back to the UK on a Royal Navy ship back to Manchester, UK, where the MI6 ran a ring of Libyan, Islam, of Libyan exiles, anti-Qaddafi exiles, 
And Salman Abedi proceeded to use the training he received from the LIFG, which is an Al-Qaeda ally in Libya, and ISIS to carry out the worst terror attack in British history, killing dozens and dozens of girls at an Ariana Grande concert. Grande concert. And, and, that, and that, that episode was also deliberately decontextualized. The overrunning of jihadist bandits through the Sahel region, from through northern Mali all the way to Burkina Faso as a result of the Libyan disaster has been whitewashed out of history now as one government after another falls to military juntas responding to the public call for security. This, it's, it's, so it's very frustrating to watch this. And I think uh, accountability, they're, they're still, uh, why, what you tried to do uh, with Samantha Power, and we need to continue to do that, to try to hold them accountable in public for this vast crime. Um, and it's the kind of thing that uh, journalists refuse to do. The Washington Post has a headline. It's every, everyone is to blame for Libya. I mean, this one, at least by uh, Ishan Taror, who is a complete tool, who is like supporting the Syria regime change operation and is their foreign policy kind of wonk. It at least mentions the Libyan regime change war in the beginning. But the headline is designed to just dilute the conversation. And it makes everyone dumb. That's why everyone in Washington right. is so dumb because they don't want they don't want anyone to know that they, they don't want anyone to read history. Right. Well, only 400 people died in, in Yugoslavia. I mean, it was okay. It was good. We didn't use depleted uranium in Belgrade. We didn't bomb the national TV station and kill makeup artists. It was, it was just a few hundred people according to um, our new community note. I mean, we're, we're, we according don't even Human know. Rights Watch, one of the most notorious, you know, uh, NGO industrial complex leaders, uh, which receives over $100 million from the Open Society Foundation from George Soros. Uh, Human Rights Watch, yeah, one of, one of the worst when it comes to supposed human rights organizations. Uh, you know, that's an acceptable source. The Yugoslav government, what would they know, you know? How could yeah. they possibly know? Human, well, Human Rights Watch was run by Ken Roth, who he was an open supporter of that military intervention. Ken Roth was an open supporter of military intervention in Libya. Ken Roth was an open supporter of regime change war in Syria. Ken Roth was an open supporter of the coup in Bolivia. And he's running a human rights organization and he's going and hanging out yeah. at the State Department under Obama. And you know who else supported all these in writing at the New York Review of Books, which he funds? George Soros. He called for direct military intervention in Syria in the New York Review of Books. So it's, it's not like some George Soros conspiracy that he wanted to topple these countries with his money and was using his empire of influence to do so. It might be an anti-Semitic stereotype for a guy to try to do that. It's definitely evil, but it's on the record. Um. Yeah, right. If, if, if he doesn't want to play into, you know, anti-Semitic stereotypes, then he should perhaps not try to rule the world with his money and influence and get rid of every government he doesn't like by force if necessary. 
yeah, I mean, I believe, you know, we are a chosen people. We're chosen to be good. So if you don't want to be good, we're not chosen to take over some, you know, take to take control or chosen to be, or, uh, you know, above anyone else. And I don't think anyone believes that, but maybe anti-Semites do, but I think, you know, you, you have a responsibility to represent and George Soros, like Sheldon Adelson has chosen to be one of the, to, to basically be the manifestation of an anti-Semitic stereotype. Uh, and, and why is it not disgusting to people who all these, you know, there's a lot of writing about George Soros now because he's handing over his empire to his son, Alex. And so there's a lot of coverage in mainstream media of George Soros's legacy. Why is it not disgusting to people that someone who obtained vast wealth through parasitic financial practices is able to actually decide who comes into power in governments around the world through an empire of influence. Why is that not upsetting to people? Why is it just brushed off as an anti-Semitic conspiracy? Because he is operating as David Ignatius wrote in 1991 in the Washington Post as an overt operator of US intelligence. He's doing what they want. The moment he stops as Elon Musk did with Crimea and Starlink, then he'll become the official enemy and then they'll start deploying the same rhetoric that they denounced before as anti-Semitic against him. But George Soros has always played ball because it, it, adva right. it advances. What does he want? He just wants global capitalism because that's how he got rich. That's the open society. He wants global capitalism with, you know, gay pride parades. He, right. he doesn't want. And, yeah. and what, it, what it comes down to is, you know, the, the idea that criticizing him is inherently anti-Semitic. It's kind of this new weaponization of identity, of identity politics, uh, the deployment of specific people in specific areas to be able to deflect any legitimate criticism as somehow racist or sexist, or uh, in the case of uh, the next person I was wanting to discuss, yeah. uh, transphobic. Yes. Uh, Sarah Ashley. Great transition. Cirillo, I know we have. <laughs> Great you. transition, Wyatt. Uh, Right. Well, uh, that's all everybody's been talking about today here in uh, in Moscow, at least, uh, is this insane video published by Sarah Ashton Cirillo, the new uh, spokesperson of the Ukrainian military. English spokesperson. Uh, just an absolutely right. Uh, just absolutely unhinged uh, diatribe. It, uh, it's it's hard to believe it was real. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of the anti-Russian voices, I was going to call them pro-Ukrainian voices, but they're not. There's nothing pro-Ukrainian about sentencing hundreds of thousands of boys to die for a proxy war for BlackRock's profits. Uh, these anti-Russian NAPO trolls and all these uh, people on social media were spending the better part of the day insisting that this video was fake, that it was somehow a, a Russian deep fake. Um, and that actually spawned a... a a further video from Sarah Ashton Cirillo in which uh, this person insisted, no, this is real. Uh, this is absolutely real. Uh, attempted to clarify that they weren't necessarily talking about hunting down uh, Russians in the streets. But uh, let's take a look at this video. Uh, it's because it's just uh, it's almost beyond belief how rabid it is. Yeah, I mean, I had named this stream goodbye horses but i can't play the the song from 
one of the most famous scenes of Silence of the Lambs because I can't layer it over this diatribe by this Ukrainian military official spokesperson, Sarah Ashton Cirillo, because uh, it would violate YouTube terms of using licensed music and we would be demonetized. So just sing it in your head. If you've seen Silence of the Lambs, just kind of hum, it, hum along as you watch this. Russia hates the truth that their obsessive focus on a Ukrainian volunteer is simply allowing the light of the Ukrainian nation's honesty to shine brightly. Next week, the teeth of the Russian devils will gnash ever harder and their rabid mouths will foam in uncontrollable frenzy as the world will see a favorite Kremlin propagandist pay for their crimes. And this puppet of Putin is only the first. Russia's war criminal propagandists will all be hunted down and justice will be served as we in Ukraine are led on this mission by faith in God, liberty, and complete liberation. So they are calling, pro promising the murder of what they call a Kremlin propagandist. And we're called Kremlin propagandists by our enemies. So it could just be anyone. Basically the murder of a journalist who doesn't report what they don't like and promising that they will only be the first. And there have been many already. I mean, they're killing media figures inside Russia left and right, literary figures. Daria Dugina was deliberately targeted in a Ukrainian SBU operation and killed. So in a car bombing, right? An this obvious is an official spokesperson. This is an official. Vladlin Tatarsky. Yeah. yeah. Uh, number number of journalists have already been targeted, killed. Uh, Daria Dugina, and, and in bombings, right? Bombings in civilian areas, bombings in civilian buildings. Uh, there, there's no other word for it but terrorism. Uh, and this obviously comes as President Zelensky himself uh, has is threatening terrorism openly uh, in an interview with The Economist. Uh, this is uh, uh, really kind of a, a terror wave, as, as you uh, described it. The, the, the idea here being, and, and I, I think it's worth pulling up this, this tweet you made. So this is Zelensky in an interview uh, about five days ago with the with the economist curtailing aid to ukraine will only prolong the war mr zelensky argues and it would create risks for the west in its own backyard there's no way of predicting how the millions of ukrainian refugees in european countries would react to their country being abandoned that's the words of the uh, economist ukrainians have generally quote behaved well and are very grateful zelensky says to those who sheltered them they will not forget that generosity, but it would not be a, quote, good story for Europe if it were to, quote, drive these people into a corner. So what could Zelensky be implying the same, around the same week that one of his top English prop language propagandists is threatening or promising the assassination of journalists, foreign journalists? Well well, let's break this down, right? Because what this means is we're going to take all those billions, hundreds of billions uh, in weapons, right? Training, funding. And what we're going to do is openly threaten to use it against you if you don't give us more. This is the same thing that Al-Qaeda did, that the Mujahideen did. Uh, and then Osama bin Laden decided he'd been betrayed by the West, which didn't want to fund him anymore. You no longer became useful 
once uh, Afghanistan succeeded, right? This, this Mujahideen in Afghanistan succeeded. They managed to use it to bring down the Soviet Union. He was no longer useful. The funding and the arms dried up. And who did he turn his sights on? Right? So this is, it's the same exact thing. Um, and I would say, you know, that these people don't learn their lessons, but I think that's being too charitable. They know exactly what they're doing. Uh, this is all kind of part of the plan, right? And then, and then we'll have justification for the next war on terror, right? And we can continue to have a reason to spend all of our money combating terror instead of uh, building any infrastructure, uh, doing anything for the masses of homeless people that now populate every major metropolitan center in the United States, uh, you know, providing any resources for people at home, uh, you know, all of that uh, is, is going to be off the table for the foreseeable future once we have this terror wave that Zelensky is now threatening us with if we don't give him what he wants. Yeah, and we've written before about uh, Italian police breaking up Azov-related plots re by returning fighters uh, to blow up police facilities and terrorize the country. We've written about American foreign fighters um, basically hiding like Craig Lang from murder charges in the U.S. These are hardcore white supremacists. Uh, but now Zelensky is referring to the entire mass of Ukrainian refugees in order to threaten and intimidate the West into continuing to provide him with advanced military systems, weapon systems. It, it also kind of reminds me of Erdogan exploiting Syrian refugees and unleashing them into Europe every time he fails to get what he wants in negotiations, uh, basically using masses of people as a negotiating tool really shows the cynicism of the government in Kiev. And well, the, the aid is going to, the aid is going to decrease. Tony Blinken was in Kiev to basically tell Zelensky that the political headwinds in Washington and in the U.S. are too intense to continue to provide aid at the same level. I think Annalena Baerbach, the German foreign minister, was there for the same reason. And they're trying to edge him into some kind of negotiations. I don't see why Russia would enter into them now, given their success on the battlefield. That's the situation diplomatically that Blinken created by stifling a ceasefire and stifling negotiations throughout 2022. Uh, but now Zelensky's threatening a terror wave across Europe. And Europe, of course, is going to bear the brunt. What, what does Washington care? It's not going to happen here. How many Ukrainian refugees have we taken in here? How many Syrian refugees did we take in here? Europe always has to bear the brunt. Germany took in 1 million Syrian refugees. The U.S. took in, what, 60,000, 50,000? I mean, the U.S. drives all of these insane proxy wars, and then it destabilizes Europe. And who benefits in Europe? I mean, this was the main thesis of my 2019 book, The Management of Savagery, the right wing. That, And then the U.S. says, oh, democracy is under threat. Brexit. It's your fault. And it's the fault specifically of the liberal interventionists, the Samantha Powers, the Hillary Clintons, the, the Joe Coxes in the UK, um, the Hillary Benz, the Keir Starmers. It's their fault. So back to Sarah Ashton Cirillo, Wyatt, they, yeah. formerly known as Michael Cirillo, a Democratic 
very shady Democratic operative from Las Vegas, whose real story has yet to be fully told. I don't know. I mean, there's so there's there's a wild story there, how they wound up being a Democratic operative in Las Vegas, uh, trapping Proud Boys through various uh, unusual schemes into committing illicit acts that got them jailed or whatever into becoming an official spokesperson for the Ukrainian military without even speaking Russian or Ukrainian. How that happened is an unusual story. Um, I mean, I guess, I, I don't know, to illustrate the, in, the weirdness of this saga, and sorry, but any normal pe person will see this as, as just extremely weird and not take seriously, uh, not take this person seriously, except as a, a, a repulsive reflection of the Ukrainian military's presentation to the world. This was Sarah Ashton Cirillo as Michael Cirillo when they were a democratic operative and liberal activist in Nevada just a few years ago, like not long ago. Hours, I'm going to be leaving to the United States. I've been here in Europe for six weeks, checked in on video several times. And this afternoon here in Frankfurt, I had the opportunity to visit the Frankfurt Book Fair, which is a tremendous international exhibition of publishers and authors, writers, and other ancillary parts of the writing industry. But the most important thing I found was this little postcard. And in German, it says, Für das Welt und die Freiheit. And right below it, it reads, hashtag, free the words. And it's a movement against censorship. A censorship a that movement is against plaguing censorship. Europe and plaguing a lot of the nation states that uh, are found across the globe. And so I'm hoping to put up this video. And if anybody sees it, remember, don't be afraid to speak your mind. And with words comes freedom. <laughs> Thank you. Never <laughs> Words comes freedom. How ironic. And so when Sarah Ashton Cirillo was a man named Michael Cirillo, uh, who seemed very comfortable about being a man, not very long ago, before they took on an entirely new identity, they were denouncing censorship. And now Sarah Ashton Cirillo, the transgender spokesperson for the Ukrainian military, has put you on a new list, Wyatt. Uh, and you know, is calling for you to be silenced and they're calling for the killing of journalists with no denunciation from the U.S., nothing from the Committee to Protect Journalists or any international NGO in condemnation. Uh, what's going on there, Wyatt? Well, it was not actually Sarah Ashton Cirillo who created this list. This was originally published by Ukraine's Ambassador for Strategic Communications, a man named Oleg Sherba. Um, but uh, I real quick, I, before we get into that, I did want to add in terms of what you, you were describing as kind of this, um, this blowback of uh, U.S. policy. Um, and, and, and you mentioned that why would Russia want to negotiate? Um, because, of course, at this point, they wouldn't, right? And they would see the fact that the United States is now willing to negotiate is basically a concession that things are not going the way the West wanted them to. Um, basically, this the same way that the West imposed sanctions on Russia, they predicted that they would turn the ruble into rubble. Uh, that didn't happen. Uh, if anything, it it allowed Russia to strengthen its domestic 
um, economic base, uh, all of the companies that that left McDonald's and Starbucks, uh, they left these massive operations more or less intact, which then Russian business people were able to take over uh, in, very quickly, uh, have all the employees already trained on how to make everything and how to run these businesses. Um, they basically just handed the keys over to Russian uh, Russian entrepreneurs. The same thing is basically happening uh, on the military front, right? We had Lloyd Austin predicting back in April of 2022, or, or rather explaining in April 2022 that, quote, we want to see Russia weakened to the degree that it can't do the things it has done in invading Ukraine, right? So that was the admission very, very straightforwardly. Not that this has anything to do with democracy, which of course doesn't exist in Ukraine, which is now under martial law, uh, which has no plans to hold elections. Zelensky has said that he won't even think about holding elections unless he gets five billion from the West. Um, but the point was rather to weaken Russia. And what has happened instead? Well, now Russia is weakening NATO. Russia has effectively demilitarized Ukraine, destroyed all of its equipment, and is now destroying all of the NATO equipment that is going to that has been getting shipped in. All of the well, Challenger of tanks, the Leopard tanks, well, plenty of it, right? Enough that it has clearly impacted a number of Western countries' military readiness and their ability to to fight. Uh, so, to me, it's it's kind of it's it's just it's Looney Tunes level. Uh, wily coyote kind of tactics where the roadrunner just keeps just keeps you know blowing up uh, wily coyote who no matter what he wants to do just can't seem to do anything right um, but getting back to this uh, Sarah Ashton Cirillo story uh, yeah I've now been placed on yet another list uh, for the crime of witnessing elections um, of traveling to territory that Ukraine claims as its own, uh, despite widespread sentiment among the people who live there. To the contrary, uh, the, I, I, I witnessed uh, elections as they were being held in uh, Zaporozhye. And for this crime, I have been added to another list. This one produced by an organization called Democratic Integrity. Uh, I've been placed on a handful of other lists and another uh, Ukrainian hit piece attacking me as well, uh, basically calling me uh, a vulture. Uh, this, this original tweet by Alexander Sherba, the ambassador for strategic communications at Ukraine's Ministry of Foreign Affairs, the former Ukrainian ambassador to Austria, says, the list of international observers, in scare quotes, who came to occupied Ukraine to enable the occupation and genocide. These aren't quote unquote useful idiots. These are vultures feeding on Ukraine's suffering. Another threat, uh, this one a little bit more veiled. This follows threats, uh, threat by Anthony Blinken himself of uh, sanctions and visa restrictions against anyone who served as an election ob observer uh, for these <laughs> elections or anyone really who came uh, to these territories at all. I myself was placed on Ukraine's notorious uh, peacemaker kill list last year after I went to Crimea within two days of making it to Russia. I was placed on this list uh, that has had num uh, dozens and dozens of people who have been placed on this list. 
have been killed and then subsequently marked liquidated over their face in big red letters in Ukrainian. Uh, another obvious threat against my physical safety for uh, my, my reporting and my coverage and my failure to toe the line in terms of what uh, the State Department's uh, preferred regime in Kiev uh, wants to have broadcast. Um, and then within, uh, you know, a couple of weeks of that, uh, my hotel in Donetsk was struck just two hours after I arrived with a 155 millimeter NATO standard artillery shell. As I was returning from a restaurant, I was about 100 meters away. Uh, I don't have any proof that they were necessarily targeting me. Uh, it's entirely plausible. They were simply targeting this hotel, the Donbass Palace, that's known to host journalists. Uh, and international figures. Certainly uh, no indication that I myself was personally targeted, but the fact of the matter is uh, they are certainly targeting other people on this list. There are a uh, number of people who've been killed, who've been placed on this list. Many of them, many of the people on this list are children. Uh, I believe her name is uh, Faina, uh, um, I'm blanking on her last name. Sevenkova. Her, a 13 year old, Sevenkova, yeah. Uh, so. Plenty of people here have have real reason to worry for their personal physical integrity. And, uh, you know, at this point, it's it's just another list to add to the list that they've listed me on. Well, uh, stay safe out there, Wyatt. I don't know. Uh, but but but, the, but but I think the important thing is that. To not be intimidated, we're not intimidated. We're not going to be intimidated by some freak show uh, threatening to kill everybody. Uh, I think what what we need to do again is hold the U.S. government accountable. This is because it's this is a U.S. government war. The U.S. government's paying for U.S. citizen Cirillo to be barking out these bizarre serial killer level threats against journalists. And so they need to be called out onto the mat for that, for sponsoring everything the Ukrainian government does. And every NGO needs to be called up and asked, and anyone who's watching this can do it. You can call and email Human Rights Watch, the Committee to Protect Journalists, Amnesty International, the Freedom of the Press Foundation, and ask what they think about this U.S.-backed U.S. citizen in Kiev calling for the mass murder of journalists who don't basically don't say what the Ukrainian government wants. And the targeting of Wyatt Reed right here. None of them have said a word, not one word. So, Wyatt, I know you nope. have to go. I don't know if there's anything you want well, to add. Yeah, I will just say that, uh, this is a point I've made many times. No, no one in the Western media, uh, aside from useful idiots, Katie Halper, uh, Aaron Mate, no one in the U.S. media said a, said a damn word about me getting added to this list, about my hotel being struck. Uh, I was told that I was going to be reached out to by someone at The Intercept. That, of course, never happened. Uh, it's not convenient to report this stuff. Uh, it's, it, it, it just goes against the narrative. It makes 
makes it too clear that what we are pursuing in Ukraine has nothing to do with democracy or human rights or liberal values in the slightest. Um, and I will just say, under I, I added another link to this because I, this is an, another list that I've found myself added on to. Uh, this one called fakeobservers.org, which is run by the European Platform for Democratic Elections, entirely funded or almost entirely funded by the European Union and the German government. Um, it's filled with inaccuracies, misinformation, lies about me. Uh, they even misspell my name at one point. Uh, they incorrectly claim that I work for Sputnik. I do not work for Sputnik anymore. Um, and then they claim that I worked for the gray zone when I covered the referendums last year. Also not true. Um, but uh, what it is, is uh, another example of basically our money in the West being used to violate our own rights and prevent us from going out to tell the truth about what's happening in the world. Uh, the, the mainstream media, of course, could come and discuss what's happening. They could send reporters to the Donbass. Uh, there are no restrictions against them. They would be allowed in. Uh, that's what I've been told by, by officials in these new territories. Uh, it's just that they choose not to, despite having billion dollar budgets, despite having more than enough resources to come, uh, to cover this, they choose instead to cover it up. Um, and that's, again, why they are threatening people uh, with sanctions, with visa restrictions. Uh, it's why they tried to freeze our GoFundMe. It's why they have permanently banned me from PayPal and from Venmo, uh, because they want to prevent their people from knowing the truth. They want to prevent our people from knowing the truth. So they punish anybody who actually tries to tell the truth. Uh, so that's where we are now. It's, it's a slippery slope. Uh, it's gotten increasingly uh, dangerous in the past few years. And I'm worried that with the escalations, the decision now to send attackums missiles, which seems to be on the horizon, something that was dismissed, like the idea of sending F-16s as a needless escalation that could potentially bring us to the cusp of World War III, now all of that is on the table. Uh, the gloves are off. There's nothing that they won't do to win re-election and to win this or, or, or continue, I should say, this proxy war with Russia. So uh, everything is fair game. And it doesn't matter how many Ukrainians have to die. It doesn't matter how many of our rights, our basic fundamental rights they have to violate. It seems at this point they're willing to do anything. Indeed, whether they'll be able to is another story, but the gloves are off. Uh, Wyatt, I, as I said, I know you had to. I know you have to go. I'm going to just uh, respond to one super chat. Um, but thanks, thanks for joining us this week, and good luck out there. Appreciate it. Take care, guys. All right, you and maybe you'll get some sleep in Kentucky. Sooner or later, I will. Thanks, Max. All right, peace. All right. So wanted to conclude, but I, I do want to address one super chat because it was something I wanted to talk about. I'm not really prepared with um, all of the elements, but this is uh, Buckeye Fan 05. Care to comment on the recent developments of the Cornell West camp? And this is a, ref a reference. 
I, I really wish I had all the video elements here to illustrate some of the points I want to make. I want to try to make it quick, but there's obviously a reference to Jimmy Dore's interview with Cornell West in which Jimmy Dore was, I mean, it got very testy and antagonistic and Jimmy Dore was challenging Cornell West's not his, his messaging around his presidential campaign and saying, I don't know who's advising you here. It seems like your advisor is some kind of infiltrator because the messaging you're using is just no one understands what you're saying and it's going to only appeal to a tiny slice of the electorate and it's going to alienate everyone else. If you're just saying we need to stop Trump, the neo-fascist white supremacist, uh, and then kind of treating Biden with kid gloves and Jimmy was predicting that he was going to basically endorse Biden and I think Jimmy's made some more articulate points since the interview took place, but it was such a reveal. It was a re very revealing look at Cornell West as a presidential candidate. I like Cornell personally. He's been very encouraging in my work. I really like what he did at the tail end of the Obama era. I think he, what he, what he did in 2015 was extremely appropriate. Just addressing how Barack Obama had failed Black America specifically, but had sold out all of his 2008 promises, which I knew he was going to do. And I really appreciate Cornell West uh, calling out Tanahisi Ta Coates, this pet project of the liberal establishment as their uh, fake James Baldwin, who was going to represent himself as some kind of radical Black intellectual while basically just being a hagiographer for Obama, who also was completely talentless. And Cornel West showed that, you know, he was, just, the emperor had no clothes. But the same thing can be done to Cornel West. He needs to realize that if he's going to run for president, he has to be held accountable. And this, this needs to be recognized about Jimmy Dore. Jimmy Dore has held accountable everybody who's running for president who has interviewed with him. I think Jimmy is, sympathetic to RFK Jr. because of his stance on the Ukraine war and on COVID. Those are two of Jimmy's main issues, but he still held him accountable on Israel and brought me on. And it kind of knocked the wind out of his sails, at least with the anti-war and anti-establishment left. Jimmy didn't have to do that. He held Marion Williamson accountable on the Ukraine war. And so he, why is he supposed to give Cornell West a free pass when Cornell West is using this very arcane boutique left language and speaking purely in boilerplate? I'm going to stand up against white supremacy and, uh, and homophobia and male supremacy. And that's what a true revolutionary does. And he's not offering any political program at all, at all. I don't see anything. And so I think it was entirely appropriate for Jimmy to hold him to account and to force him to address some of the kind of contradictions in his actions and his rhetoric. Where Biden is president now and Cornell West doesn't seem to be running against Biden. All of his rhetoric is directed against much of his rhetoric or the disproportionate amount of it is directed against Trump. Here's what I think was exposed through this exchange. And I mean, most people are focusing on some rancorous exchanges at the beginning, but it's important to go towards the end where Jimmy uh, grill, challenges Cornell West on his view of the Trump indictments and of the whole campaign to basically prevent Donald Trump from running for office. And what Jimmy's talking about is what many people call the deep state 
you call it the national security state, but it's basically the rigging of democracy to prevent a candidate who's seen as a rogue in just as Bernie Sanders in some ways was, and as Cornell West would be if he actually was threatening the establishment as a presidential candidate, using the law to prevent him from running for office, just finessing all of these indictments and then, you know, finessing indictments that sentence uh, Proud Boys to over 20 years in prison for riots that they didn't even participate in. And Cornell West, he said, well, I'm in deep solidarity with the people in Cop City who are getting hit with the RICO Act the way Trump is, but I'm not in deep solidarity with Donald Trump. I'm not in deep solidarity with the Proud Boys. So I don't care about that. And then he accuses Jimmy of supporting Trump because he, he brings those issues up. And that's the problem with Cornell West's presidential campaign. It's not about your deep solidarity. It's about, uh, it's about the system that we're living under and it will hurt the people that you're in deep solidarity with, but it's using the people that are more threatening to it at the current moment, at this impasse, as in order to set a new standard for prosecuting protest. And Cornell West won't even address that because he, because he, 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 because they're white supremacists or transphobes or homophobes. Right now, you have such a huge opportunity in this country if you're an anti-establishment independent candidate to reach out to people who just want to give the system a giant middle finger because they see that it's been against them since they lost their homes during the foreclosure crisis, since uh, that they see it's against them because it's giving hundreds of billions of dollars to Ukraine and the people in Hawaii got 700 bucks each. They see that it's against them because their preferred candidate, Donald Trump, is being targeted with lawfare and was falsely branded as a Russian agent for years and years with no evidence at all. So Cornell West is not running an anti-establishment campaign that can reach out to those people and actually, if he sees them as white supremacists or fascists, well, if they hear him and they say, well, wait a minute, this guy's making sense, that would be building a bridge. Instead, he's dismissing them all and only addressing people with whom he's in deep solidarity, which is a tiny group of boutique left activists in a blue area of the country. Uh, and so I said, I said to Cornell directly that your rhetoric might be good for the old Brecht Forum, which was a defunct activist space in New York, but real serious independent candidates like Ralph Nader, for example, in 2000, they made waves and threatened the establishment by putting together a real political program. And it was based on class, not all of the identitarian issues. Obviously, we can't discount identity uh, for Black Americans. That's a huge factor, That, but it's bound up in class. But if you're running for president, you should be running for president of everyone. And it's we're in it at a point a terminal phase of neoliberalism where I think there's a huge opportunity for an independent candidate to actually build an anti-establishment coalition. What Cornell West wants to do is just keep this confined to the boutique left, do some virtue signaling. And, you know, unfortunately, I think he needs to be asked whether this is just about, uh, you know, a vanity project because of course the system's rigged. So why would anyone run for president except maybe for vanity? That's a valid question. He needs to be asked that. And so what he does, his response, and this this is, you know, 
the question that I'm addressing here. I'll just put the question back, back on, on screen. Care to comment on the recent developments of the Cornell West camp? His response has been to sick sympathetic voices against Jimmy Dore, uh, to attack Jimmy Dore. First, that's the first response, to viciously attack Jimmy Dore. But when Anderson Cooper was much more condescending with Cornell West, or Ari Melber uh, criticized Cornell West for wanting to withdraw from NATO, and they kind of called him a kook, did he send his supporters against them? No. He was like Brother Ari and Brother uh, Anderson. He's been much more hostile to Jimmy Dore because Jimmy Dore hit the, he hit the nail on the head. And so Cornell West runs the risk now of becoming a caricature as a presidential candidate, whereas he had consolidated his reputation as a academic and activist, but he's in a different realm now. And Jimmy Dore is the one who threatens his image by actually asking serious questions about the contradictions in his messaging, messaging and how he's out of touch. Another area where he's been out of touch is the, the COVID event, the pandemic. Cornell West has never retracted his statement praising Anthony Fauci as some kind of heroic figure. He refuses to address what the, the lockdowns did to Black America specifically to black public school students, setting them back for a generation by putting them in remote learning, setting their families back to black women who were forced to, uh, in some cases, quit their jobs because they now had children at home who were remote learning who could not go to school. Uh, the threat that, that and, 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 the, and the insanity of the vaccine mandates, throwing people out of their jobs for refusing to inject a substance in their body that did not prevent infection or transmission. He just won't go there. So he's lost in 2015, like so much of the left, like so much of the boutique left. They're lost back in the glory days of the Black Lives Matter before it became this like uh, Biden election project. They're lost in 2015. They're lost in the, in the glory days of Bernie's 2016 campaign, still feeding off the energy of Occupy. And they don't want to address what's happened in the past three years with the pandemic and how that's changed our politics and our society. Washington, D.C., homicides are up over 20%. Why is that? That it doesn't have something to do with the societal deterioration and destabilization of putting people out of work and out of their homes through mass evictions of the lockdowns. He doesn't want to address that. BlackRock seizing up property. Downtown DC is a ghost town now since the lockdowns and the pandemic. It's not coming back. What's, what's coming to downtown DC is extreme poverty, homelessness, crime. BlackRock's buying up distressed commercial real estate. He has no analysis of that. And Jimmy Dore was calling him out. Where have you been? Where are you? Why are you running for president? We're in a different era. This isn't 2015 anymore. Why aren't you attacking Biden as hard as you're attacking Donald Trump? Biden's president. Biden's got us in Ukraine. Biden's sending weapons to Taiwan. So it's completely valid. And Cornell West's response has been that and to appoint Peter Dow, the guy who was attacking us all, smearing us all, 
back in 2016 on behalf of Hillary's neoliberal campaign that Cornell West had correctly refused to support after Bernie dropped out. Also in 2020, he refused to support it. So you're bringing on this guy who's an obvious grifter. Jimmy said, your advisor must be an infiltrator. And Cornell West said, well, I don't have an advisor. Well, now you do. And he's an infiltrator. And he, I don't know where the money is coming from to pay him, but he's an infiltrator. He's a clown. He's a grifter. And uh, I don't see any reason. I, I, I don't see why the Green Party uh, did this. I mean, Jill Stein, I like her a lot respect what she did when she ran, um, especially on foreign policy. And they allow this guy to get in the door, Peter Dow, to be the campaign manager. I mean, this is ridiculous. So it's, it's, it's also just generally depressing. I mean, you look at the field of Candidates who are the sort of posing as anti-establishment, Cornell West, Marion Williamson, RFK Jr., they all have they all they all have these huge glaring problems that almost make it impossible to support them. I mean, I think RFK's support for the Likud wing of the Zionist movement, for the Netanyahu government. And the falsehoods he deployed and the smears that he issued against all Palestinians are a poison pill that cannot be swallowed. Marion Williamson's support for sending hundreds of billions of dollars to Ukraine. Sorry. Uh, and, you know, I, it's, it, it's not as though she's the strongest messenger on other issues. And then you have Cornell West refusing to address the pandemic, sending people to brand Jimmy Dore a racist for actually challenging him and sounding just kind of out of touch with where most of the country is right now. Cornell West, the academic, Cornell West, the activist, great job. You know, we appreciate you, but you're running for president. So it's time for somebody. I mean, if you're good, I don't, if you're going to run for president, you should at least acknowledge that the whole thing is rigged against you and that you have nothing to lose by actually challenging the establishment and not just some aspect of it, unless you're running a vanity campaign for yourself. Um, so that's what I have to say about that. Hope that registered. I see we got a lot of live comments. Um, I'll address one more. Someone saying, you know, it's nuts to take one thing RFK said about Israel and use and 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 and, and uh, look at it as a contamination of his entire campaign. Sorry, Israel is a poison pill. When you issue unequivocal support to Israel, as RFK did, it 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 will poison everything else you seek to do, and uh, you're setting the stage for a regional war with Iran. And that will destroy your presidency and it will destroy a large swath of the planet. So sorry, you can't do that. And his refusal to discuss this further and just kind of moving along raises questions about why he did it in the first place. Why did you do that Shmuley event? Why did you get involved with people who are literal 
ultra Zionist race hustlers who are always seeking some kind of transactional relationship with candidates. What's going on there? What does that say about your integrity? So right now feels like a very hopeless moment for independent politics. Nader was really the high point. I mean, Ross Perot, I don't support, I didn't support him, but he really showed how a rich guy can do an independent campaign. Ralph Nader showed how a an, uh, kind of public advocate can run a grassroots based campaign. And then, you know, he was destroyed because yeah, this will be my final comment. Ralph Nader was destroyed because he was blamed for handing over was was blamed for uh, handing over the presidency to George W. Bush and then, you know, making the Iraq war possible, the whole security state that grew out of the Patriot Act. At the time, I blamed him. I was mad at Ralph Nader. I've had kind of a reassessment. But, you know, Ralph Nader was never welcomed back into polite society It's because he ran in Florida. You know, Michael Moore is blaming that was was not blaming him, but begging him not to run in Florida, take your name off the ballot. And then you had the whole Florida disaster and George W. Bush steals the election. And Jill Stein was then the next kind of major green candidate to run um, after some weaker runs by, I think, David Cobb. Jill Stein kind of registered. And so they destroyed her over traveling to RT's 10th anniversary and they initiate the same forces that are seeking to jail Donald Trump um, brought her before the Senate Intelligence Committee and initiated like an espionage investigation against Jill Stein. And that severely weakened the Green Party, led to the NATO neocon tool Howie Hawkins taking over for a while. Howie Hawkins supported regime change in Syria, the Ukraine proxy war. And uh, Cornell West has come over from the People's Party in a weird way. And I just spent the last 20 minutes addressing why his campaign is weak and why the other campaigns are weak. But they've been weakened systematically since Nader's run because of the threat they present to the Democratic Party by the same forces that are trying to keep Trump off the ballot. So right now we have a situation where the neoliberal establishment and the United States as a global power in a unipolar world are weaker than at any point since the end of the Cold War, which should create space for independent candidates, which should propel independent candidates and vault them into the mainstream because of the amount of discontent, radical discontent among the American masses, the betrayed American worker. But we have a weaker field of independent candidates as a result, partly of the threat that independent politics presents in the U.S. and the systematic campaign to weaken it. So here we here we have uh, some very flawed candidates. RFK, I don't know if he suggested he's going to run as an independent. We'll see what happens there. But uh, it's, 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 a, it's a very dispiriting moment. And, and I think whatever you think of, whatever your problems with Jimmy Dore might be, he you, you should owe it to him for at least holding accountable every candidate who agrees to interview with them and exposing their contradictions. The voter deserves that. Voters deserve that. And of course he would do that with major candidates, but they won't get anywhere near him. So that's what I have to say about that. Thanks for joining us. 
Uh, thanks for getting us to 300,000 YouTube subscribers. Like this stream, subscribe if you can't, sign up for our newsletter at thegrayzone.com. Uh, you can listen to all sorts of content at my podcast. Just look up Max Blumenthal on Spotify or iTunes or whatever, wherever podcasts are. Thanks to Chris Weaver for all of his help in uh, producing. And thanks to Wyatt again for joining us. Um, and we'll be back next week. Peace.